Amen. Amen. Well, please go ahead and take your seats. Open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible with you, the ushers are going to be coming up in the aisle with uh, Bibles right now. Some of them were in the choir, so just bear with them um, while they sprint back to perform their, uh, their duty for you. We're in John uh, chapter 11 and verse 45. I'll meet you there in a second. Uh, seven days from now... Uh, Hope Church Toronto North will be having their first public service. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for that. And so please be praying for that group. So excited for them. So thankful for Pastor Marvin, for Kim and their family and that church plant and, and all that God has uh, been uh, doing. They had a clothing drive last week and or yesterday actually um, in, the, in the community to start to be a blessing um, and uh, to have an opportunity to share the love of Christ. So be praying uh, for Hope Church Toronto North. Also want to say a shout out to our grade sixes uh, who are here today. Uh, you guys have graduated out of Harvest Kids. So we want to say welcome. We're so glad to have you with us. And make sure you, yeah, that's worth welcoming for sure. And we look forward to seeing you on uh, Tuesday night uh, to have a great time together with our uh, youth group. So we're jumping back into the Gospel of John. We left off at, really at the end of chapter 11 in the month of June. Took a break to go through our Summer in the Psalms series. And, and now we're starting the second part of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John really divides into two uh, categories. It, it divides into two distinct uh, sections. And so we, we're going we're gonna to look at the beginning of this second section. Now there's a bunch of similarities between part one and part two. Part one, as you remember, begins with John chapter one. It begins with the words, in the beginning. And just like the story of creation, it, it starts with six days. And then the six days sort of culminates at the wedding of Cana, just like the six days culminated with the wedding between Adam and Eve. So John draws a parallel between Genesis and the gospel that he's writing. Well, part two also begins with a reference to six days. The wedding at Cana was the first of six signs in part one of the gospel of John. You have these six signs that are all leading up, they're all building momentum to one ultimate sign. The seventh sign, which is Jesus being raised from the dead. Part one ends with someone else being raised from the dead, Lazarus. So they, they, they parallel one another. They mirror each other. Both gospels, or both parts of the gospel, conclude with someone making a statement about believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mary, Lazarus' sister, says at, at, in John chapter 11. And that's what John, who wrote the gospel of John, says in John 20. Now the major difference between part one and part two is part one, it covers like two to three years of Jesus' life. He's going back and forth from Jerusalem up to Galilee where he's from. And there's all these Jewish festivals that Jesus keeps coming back for. But the, the second part really deals with about 45 days in Jesus' life. In fact, most of it deals with just six days. The, the, the final week of Jesus' life. And so let me read to you the passage that we're going to study today. Which acts as a bridge between part one and part two. It wraps up all that has happened so far. And it also points forward to what's going to happen in part two. John 11 verse 45. It says, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and seen what he did. That's raising Lazarus. Believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performed signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom had been raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, believing in Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word. Lord, we believe that it's by your word that you spoke this universe into existence. We believe that it is the word of your power that upholds the entire universe. And so God, we marvel at the fact that in our laps right now, in our hands or on our phones, is your word. That same power is made accessible to us in so many, so many different ways. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having your word. I pray right now, Lord, that you would fill us with expectation, Lord. Fill both the preacher and the congregation with a sense of expectation that we are interacting right now with a supernatural book that is in fact alive. And not merely alive, but that is active 
in our lives. And so I pray, God, that you would help us, that you would transform us, Lord. I pray that you would correct me from any form of error and allow me to only speak what is there, Lord. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, as your word is taught, that sinners would be humbled, that the Savior would be exalted, and that holiness would be promoted. All for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This passage that we're studying today really comes at us in two different settings. One is an emergency committee meeting. And the other is, a, is a, a dinner party. The emergency committee meeting is being held by the Sanhedrin. That's a collection of the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, sort of the ruling class of the Jewish people. The dinner party is being held in Bethany where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, are there. What's interesting about these two moments in time is... Caiaphas says something, Mary does something. And in the saying of what Caiaphas says, there's a deeper meaning to the words. And in the doing of what Mary does, there's a deeper meaning to her actions. And so we're going to be looking at that today. We're going to be looking at, so here's what Caiaphas is saying, here is what Mary is doing, but what is God saying and what is God doing at this absolutely crucial moment in history, six days before the Passover, six days before Jesus is crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 45 says that many of the Jews, therefore, believed. They believed in him. They saw that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. But verse 46 is really sobering. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees. You see, this is, this is something we should pay attention to. They all had access to the same information. They, they all had the same data in front of them. There was a tomb. It was sealed. Lazarus had been dead in there for multiple days. The, they rolled the stone away. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out. Everyone saw that. Many of them believed. Some of them didn't. You see, we need to understand the severity of hardened hearts. Some of us think, you know what, if I could just come on the college campus where I attend university, if I could just have a miracle performed, if I could just have in the name of Jesus someone raised from the dead who had been dead for four days, then there would be a revival. The whole campus would believe. Well, many might, but some still won't. If I, could get, if I could get Jesus to come at Thanksgiving and maybe one of my aunts or uncles could die and he could raise them from the dead, then my whole family would be converted to Christianity. Well, slow down. Everybody had access to the same data, the same information. Many believe, but some, some still didn't. Don't assume that if, if you saw more miracles in your life that you would have greater faith. And certainly don't wait for a miracle before you choose to believe in Jesus. There are plenty of people who saw miracles and still refused to believe. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. They, they couldn't deny that Jesus was actually performing miracles. 
They're not saying that Lazarus' resurrection was some sort of hoax. They gave up on that in John chapter 10 when they tried to disprove the man who had been born blind and they couldn't. It's, it's It's an established fact that Jesus was recognized by the people in his day as having the ability to perform miracles. Not just the biblical authors. Secular historians also record that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth and that he performed wonders, signs, miracles. So if you're here today and you're skeptical about Christianity, you think the whole thing is just made up, but just study your history. Investigate it. There is a man who claimed to be God and he backed up those claims by performing things that no human being had ever done before. Start there. And and begin to research and think about it because even his opponents couldn't deny that he was doing these things. And I I love the irony of verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. As if they are somehow letting Jesus go on. I mean, we've been... We've been studying the Gospel of John for months. Back in chapter 5, they were already trying to kill him. In chapter 8, they tried to stone him to death. They did the same thing in chapter 10. They're not letting him go on. He's going on. They have no control over him. Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. He cannot be contained. If we let him go on. Notice their main concern, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's what their main concern was, the Romans. Notice how this is the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. No one's concerned about what God thinks. They're only concerned about what the Romans think. They're thinking in terms of politics and position and power and their place in society and they are not willing to let go of that. And so, they get nervous because they're concerned about the Romans. Because they don't want to have their place taken away. They don't want to have the nation, what, listen, really, ultimately, what nation, what place? They are under Roman military occupation. They're they're talking, well, we don't want our freedom to be taken away. What freedom? They can't sneeze without asking Pilate for permission first. There is a, there is a, A guard tower built right beside the temple at this time. Looking in on the temple watch. They're living in a surveillance state. And they're talking like they have some sort of freedom. What freedom? They have become so accustomed with the status quo. They have learned how to function in the dysfunction. These are people who are experts in the Old Testament. The Old Testament told them that living in the promised land was supposed to be fruitful and abundant and flowing with milk and honey and feasting and harvest. That wasn't how they were living. The the Old Testament talked about other nations flocking to Zion, to Jerusalem, to come. That wasn't happening. They had settled. This wasn't the way that life was supposed to be. They had settled. And you might be thinking, listen, I'm kind of interested in Jesus and my friend or my family. They believe in Jesus. But you know what? I don't want to give up my freedom. What freedom? Admit it. You're functioning in your dysfunction. You know there's more to life. You might not have read the Old Testament scriptures, but there's something inside of you that says there's more. But you become accustomed to what you have. And rather than taking that step of faith 
and actually having the opportunity to experience true freedom, you're afraid of what the Romans will do. You're afraid of having the status quo disrupted. Don't fall into the same trap that the Sanhedrin did. Now you can guess in verse 49 when we hear from Caiaphas, he was a bit of a crusty character. It says he was high priest that year. He says, you know nothing at all. <laughs> and he says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. If you're taking notes today, jot this down. We're looking at things from Caiaphas' perspective first. Caiaphas thinks that Jesus must be killed without realizing that Jesus will be crowned. So Caiaphas is working on this level, thinking Jesus must be killed. One man must die or else the Romans are going to come and destroy our nation. But God is working on a whole other level. He's going to work through what Caiaphas said. And ultimately, even though Jesus is killed, Caiaphas ultimately gets what he wants without realizing that Jesus will be crowned. And by the way, those Romans, they are coming. But not because Jesus was crowned king, but because Jesus was rejected as king when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. So Caiaphas here speaking, he, he makes a profound statement. One man should die for the people in verse 50. Not that the whole nation should perish, but it says in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas meant it for political assassination motivated by fear. God, however, meant it for sacrificial atonement motivated by love. But God, in his infinite sovereignty, can take the evil attentions of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and work them out for the ultimate good, not just for the nation that Caiaphas thought he was saving, but for the whole world. It goes on to say that, that he prophesied, verse 52, not for the nation also, but not for the nation only, but also to gather in to one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus in Matthew 10 said, I, the, I'm the shepherd of the sheep. He says, I have another flock. And they will be one. And that we are to be grafted in like branches on a tree, grafted into the promises that are given to the people of God. Jesus did die for the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. He did die to bring that ultimate blessing to the descendants of Abraham, but he also died to expand that blessing, just as God told Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God sovereignly used the evil intentions, and he spoke through Caiaphas that day. God can speak through anyone he wants to. Ask Balaam. He had an ongoing conversation with his donkey. God's working on these multiple levels. We see this in the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's brothers, you know, wanted to kill him. They ended up throwing him in a pit and then they sold him into slavery. They wanted to do nothing but evil to Joseph. But God used that evil to get Joseph to Egypt so that he could rescue the very brothers who tried to destroy him and not only the brothers but all the nations around. The same thing is true. The apostles saw this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
God in his infinite wisdom, how did he do it? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The evil intentions to crucify Jesus was part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Caiaphas's bright idea that Jesus should die for the nation. Caiaphas spoke truth in that moment, but truth that was on a far deeper level than he could have realized. It says at the end of verse 52 that there are these people that were that the, the nations who are scattered abroad, that they're to be called children of God. We're all brothers and sisters in God's family. And we have been grafted into the promises of the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And we have the privilege of being called children of God, not because of birth, but because of belief. And at the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus clarified, John clarified what believing means and how to become a child of God. It says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If, if, if you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, believe that he suffered and died in your place, and choose to follow him, you would have the privilege of being called a child of God. You would be made into, into one. Verse 54 says that Jesus, you know, he, he avoided the area for the past little while because he knew what the Sanhedrin was planning to do. In verse 55 it says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now this is interesting. Faithful Jewish people who are trying to get to Passover, who truly want to worship, who are longing for the coming of the Messiah, who are asking questions like, is Jesus the one? They are coming to, they're coming early to purify themselves. Now, who is facilitating the purification rituals? Who's, who's facilitating the cleansing and the sacrifices to get them ready for Passover? It's the Sanhedrin. These people are coming, seeking to be purified. Meanwhile, the ones who are doing the purification rituals are plotting murder of an innocent man. We move from the streets of Jerusalem now to the quietness of this town a few miles outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, six days before the Passover. Remember Six days, this is, we're going to spend the next seven chapters just, just working through these last six days of Jesus' life. Part two begins the way part one begins, with a reference to six days. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Another Passover is about to, become, about to start. Two other Passovers have already taken place in the Gospel of John. One in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the, table, the temple from all the money, money changers and said, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And then in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000 and said, I am the bread of life. But this is the third and ultimate Passover. Just like you had all of these other signs that led to the ultimate sign, you had these other Passover moments. Now this is the ultimate moment where Jesus is going to be the Lamb. Where his blood is going to be shed so that the wrath of God would pass over those who place their faith in him. Verse 2 says they gave a dinner for him. And Martha served. That's classic, right? Lazarus is there reclining at the table. And it's here that we see things from Mary's perspective. Let's jot this down if you're taking notes today. Mary thinks Jesus must be crowned. 
without realizing Jesus will be killed. Mary thinks Jesus must be crowned without realizing that Jesus will be killed. Caiaphas was looking at it from this direction. we got to kill Jesus, but he didn't realize that Christ was going to be made king. Mary, on the other hand, is thinking, no, we need to make Jesus king without realizing that Jesus was first going to be killed. John um, didn't really like repetition. Do you have someone in your family that's always telling the same stories, right? And then you have other people in the family that like to acknowledge that and try to speed up the story. All of those sort of dynamics play out among family and friendships. I know I have a bunch of stories I end up just retelling all the time. John was one of those guys that didn't like repetition. He was the last of the gospel authors to put pen to paper. He had read Mark, he had read Luke, he had read Matthew. He appreciated what they had covered. But if you notice, the Gospel of John mentions hardly anything that Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because they're, in, they're, they're synthesized. They're, they're together. They give a synopsis. They line up. But John kind of stands alone. Because he didn't... Matthew tells the same thing Mark said and Luke says the same thing. They just give a little tweaks and changes. They all have their individual content, but there's a lot of repetition. John has hardly any repetition. So when John chooses to repeat a story, that should really capture our imagination. That should really cause us to stop and to think, why is he doing this? He only did it one other time when, when Jesus fed the 5,000 people in John chapter 6. That's recorded in the other synoptic gospels. But he chooses to retell this story of this dinner party. Now, Mark and Matthew tell us that this happened at the house of someone named Simon the leper. And you can imagine that if you spent any time with Jesus, it's more accurately Simon the former leper. You know what I'm saying? And uh, Kent Hughes, this great preacher from, from the Chicago area, says that you can kind of imagine what the conversation would have been like. You know, Simon the leper retelling the story of like, my hands were all, were all gnarled together. I was missing my left thumb and, and I was completely numb. And then, and then Jesus said the word and I was totally healed. I was totally restored. And everyone's like, wow, that's amazing. And then Lazarus, sort of like Brian Regan style, is just like, uh-huh. Cool story, bro. So that was neat how your little, your little hand thing that Jesus did. Yeah, I was dead in a tomb for four days. I was walking out. I still had the bandages on. Just imagine the conversation that would have been happening around the table. Mary does something to interrupt the event. It says she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. It was expensive. She took this ointment that was expensive. It was expensive because it was made from nard. The, the nard explains why it was expensive. A nard comes from a plant called spike nard, which grows only in the Himalayan region of India. And so it had to be imported. And so we're talking about a, a, a minimum 4,000 kilometer journey to import this plant. So just to put it in perspective, picture an agrarian, you know, pre-modern society. Imagine importing something from Vancouver, British Columbia. No railroads, no highways, crossing the Rockies. It was highly, highly expensive to get your hands on spike nard, to get your hands, and it's pure 
nard. This isn't duty-free shop eau de toilette, okay? It is pure. Also make note of the fact that there's a lot of it. There's, there's tons of it. Think, think about a... Uh, this is what, where perfume normally comes, right? You've got this small little bottle. You give it a little spray on your wrists or behind your ears. It says that she had a pound of it. That, that it the modern equivalent would be 500 milliliters. So picture just a, one of those oversized mason jars that, that spaghetti sauce comes in. And she didn't just spray it behind Jesus' ear. No, she poured it. And it says in verse 3 that she anointed him. Anointing was a way to honor someone. There were three prestigious positions in the history of Israel where people were revered so much that they, re re they received anointing before they took their position. Priests were anointed, prophets were anointed, and kings were anointed. As the Jewish people were anticipating the coming of their Savior, they called him the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, which literally means the anointed one. An appropriate Greek synonym would be that Mary took the nard and Christed his feet. She messiahed him in that moment. Declaring him to be the prophet, to be the priest, to be the king. She had already made that declaration in chapter 11, verse 27. She said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And now, in chapter 12, she's so thankful with what she had done for her brother. Now there's no question in her mind that he is the one that is worthy of honor. And she knows he must be crowned as king. He must be anointed as priest. He's clearly the prophet that Moses spoke about. And if no one else is going to do it, then I'm going to do it. It's also interesting, too, where she anointed him. The, the template, the model, is to anoint someone's head. But she went for his feet. The way they ate in the ancient Near East was the table was on the floor and they leaned on their, on their left elbow and they reached into a sort of a common plate together. And so Mary went around the outside, maybe even unnoticed by the others, and anointed Jesus' feet with nard. There's, there's a ton of Marys in the Bible. This particular Mary, the Mary sister of Lazarus, isn't mentioned a whole lot in the Bible, but the three times that she is mentioned, she's at Jesus' feet. She's most well known for that little interaction with her and Jesus and her sister in Luke chapter 10, where Martha's running around serving the table and she's upset, and then it says that Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, she's sitting at the Lord's feet, she wants to learn from him. In John 11, when Mary and Martha had sent to Jesus, asking him to come because their brother was sick. 
And after he had died and was buried, and then Jesus shows up. Mary is so frustrated. She's so disappointed. She doesn't know what to do. Where does she go? She goes. Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet. And then here in John 12, verse 3, again, she's at Jesus' feet. I don't know how people are going to remember me. I don't know how my kids will remember me or this church will remember me when I'm gone. But that would be a great way to be remembered. One thing I knew for sure about Ted was that he was all about being at the feet of Jesus. It's not true right now. I want to make it so. The amazing thing too here is like, look at all the different stages of his life. She's at his feet because she wants to learn. She wants to grow. But then she's at his feet when she's mourning. And then she's at his feet when she's worshiping and praising him. We, we can come to his feet. We can come before him at any stage in our lives, can't we? She really humbled himself in that moment to, to go to his, to his feet Beyond that, in verse 3, it says she wiped his feet with her hair. In those days, a, a Jewish woman would have respectfully kept her hair tied back in all public and social settings. But Mary ultimately humbles herself in this moment by untying her hair. Many of the people in the room would have never, ever seen her in that way. And wiping Jesus' feet. I mentioned how John doesn't like to repeat stories in other gospels. Well, Matthew and Mark, sorry, Matthew and Mark place this story at the end, right before the Passover, the same place John does. Luke, on the other hand, retells a story similar to this one. Far earlier, way before the cross. Turn with me quickly to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. There's a lot of similarities between Luke 7 and John 12. So many similarities that, that a number of scholars believe that this is the same event. And for whatever reason, John chose to sort of tell it as a flash forward. But the... The story is quite unique in a number of ways. First of all, it's happening at a different time. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house. So this isn't a, a, a leper that had been healed. This is, this, is, this is a Pharisee. The guy's name actually is Simon, but there's all kinds of people named Simon. There are all kinds of people named Mary. There's all kinds of people named Simon. Peter's name was Simon. Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' Christ. There's all kinds of Simons. But look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Then the, the Pharisee objects. Then Jesus tells this parable about two debtors and who, who's more grateful for being forgiven their debt, the one who owed a little bit or the one who owed a lot. And then Jesus concludes by saying, the one who loves much is the one who has been forgiven much. 
Now, because of the similarities, many people try to put Mary, the sister of Lazarus, into this story in Luke 7. I don't think that that's what's happening. I think that Mary is identifying with this woman. Now, she's described here as a woman of the city. She's described here as a sinner. She is, she is most likely a prostitute. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, came from a really respectable family. Her brother was buried in a tomb with a big stone rule. That, that's how rich people get married. All kinds of people came to their funeral. I believe what's happening here is Mary, who no doubt probably would have heard about that story or witnessed that story herself, understands the significance of her own sin and chooses to identify with that woman. You see, sometimes we can have a sanitized understanding of our own sin while holding on to a scandalized interpretation of other people's sins. But I believe in this moment, Mary is understanding that she, even though she had this middle, upper middle class lifestyle, living as a respectable person, she understood that as a lost sinner, she was just as lost as that woman on that day. And I believe that she reenacted, even to the taking her hair down, she reenacted that story. Now, there isn't a whole lot of clarity on that. Don't go tell your friends like that is like gospel truth. That's just, that's just trying to piece the story together. We don't need that connection in order to understand that she did humble herself in this moment. And notice the result at the end of verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Everyone noticed when we are truly living for Jesus, when we are truly worshiping him at his feet, everyone can tell. The room was filled with the fragrance. Everyone can tell, including Judas. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going through the purification rituals, even though they're planning murder, Judas is, is putting up this, this, this big opposition for the sake of the poor. Meanwhile, he's stealing from the money bag. He zeroes in on the cost. The Sanhedrin, they were concerned about politics. Judas was concerned about economics. He says this, this ointment would have cost 300 denarii. If you take uh, 365 days and subtract all of the, uh, all of the Sabbaths and the, and the feasts, you, you, get about, you get about 300 working days. Uh, a denarii was how much a common laborer would get paid each day. So this is an annual salary for, uh, for a common worker. That's how much she spent. So think about this. Think about what Mary did. She took a very large amount of a very expensive ointment and for one time, for one person, on one part of his body, poured it all out. That's what worship is. But Judas is doing the math in his head. Judas was calculating because he was about to get offered 
30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver to betray, to entrap Jesus so that he could be crucified. Now it's kind of complicated to, to do currency exchange in the ancient Near East. 30 pieces of silver would have been the, the kind of silver that was given as the temple tax. And that wasn't Roman currency, which is what denarii was, because that was considered impure. But a piece of silver is worth about three or four denarii. So if you do the math, 30 pieces of silver is worth 100 denarii. So think about, think about how people are evaluating the worth of Jesus. Mary considered the feet of Jesus worth 300 denarii. Judas considered the life of Jesus 100 denarii. What's, what's your price? What would it take for you to deny Jesus, to turn away from him? What is your price? Judas had, a, it seems obviously low, but as soon as you decide that there's a price, that price can come down. You can get negotiated down. Satan will barter with you. 30 pieces of silver, 100 denarii. What's your price? What was Jesus' price? Remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Satan took him and he showed him all the riches of the world, all the kingdoms of the world. And all Jesus had to do was bow down. And Jesus said, no. That's his price. When he considered uh, a relationship with us, when he considered building together a new family of the children of God, there was no price. No one could pay him a price to get him off his mission. In fact, he paid the price of his precious blood for us. So Mary gives this incredible expression of worship, even though Judas opposes her. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You might have a, a footnote in your Bible that says she intended to keep it. The Greek there is, is, is a little bit hard to translate into English. But thankfully, this is recorded in other Gospels. So in Mark chapter 14, it's really clear. Jesus said, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You see, this is what is mind-blowing. Remember, Caiaphas was thinking that he was killing Jesus without realizing that he was actually making it possible for God to crown Jesus. Mary thinks that she's crowning Jesus without realizing that Jesus first needs to be killed. She thinks that she's anointing him as king, but what she's doing is preparing him for burial. But this is the infinite wisdom and the plan of God. In verse 8, Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. But you do not always have me. Jesus makes reference here to Deuteronomy 15.11. It's important to care for the poor. And Jesus said you'll always have the poor with you. Because it says in Deuteronomy 15.11. No matter how much our society thrives. No matter how good the political programs are. Or the church programs are. It says there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you. You shall open wide your hand to your brother. To the needy and to the poor in your land. We are supposed to give to the poor. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with me. 
But notice how Jesus is not afraid to let people know who he is. But he says, you will not always have me. Jesus is essentially saying here, I'm special. We get annoyed by people who talk about how they're special and how things don't apply. But Jesus is simply telling the truth. I will not always be here in this way. She is preparing me for my burial. What Jesus is, is helping us understand here is as important as it is to care for the poor, there must be the priority. The priority is worship. The mission statement of our church is to fulfill the Great Commission, which is making disciples in the spirit of the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment, commandment, the great commandment comes in two parts, right? The first is to love God, heart, soul, mind, strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't care for the poor, but we need to care. We need to make sure that we are worshiping first or else our care for the poor will become corrupted. We need to care for the poor because we need to understand that they are made in the image of the God that we worship. And we need to understand that we ourselves, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Edward W. Clink, who with a name like that, you know you're destined to become a theologian. Edward W. Clink III actually is his full name. In his commentary on the Gospel of John said this, we give to the poor because they are in need. We give to Jesus because we are in need. You understand the sequence, the priority? Giving, benevolence, care for the poor is absolutely important. I need to grow in this. Our church needs to grow in this. Hope Toronto North is setting the tone for this and challenging us on this. But it must flow from worship. So Judas backs off of Jesus. In verse 9 it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So much for the whole, like, one man must die for the nation plan. Now it's two. Then they're going to try and kill all the apostles. They get to James quite early. You see, we, we can never contain evil. It's, we're just, we're just, I, know it's, I know we shouldn't murder, but we'll just kill one person for the sake of the... Okay, now it's... A day hasn't gone by, and, it's, and it's, now it's two people. So the... They try to put, like, if Jesus could heal Lazarus when he got sick, don't you think he could, he could raise Lazarus when, when he was murdered? And they, they, never, they, they never got to Lazarus anyway. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The story ends right where the first story begins. People believing in Jesus, John eleven forty five 45 and John 12, 11. Many people are believing in him. Do you believe in him? And are you believing in him as he truly is? And are you worshiping him the way that he alone deserves to be worshipped? Just think about worship from the perspective of Mary here, okay? Worship first and foremost requires sacrifice. 
That was a very expensive bottle of ointment that she poured out on Jesus. Worship requires a sacrifice. Also understand this, Judas opposed Mary. When we truly live a life of worship, and that goes beyond the four walls of this building, when we live a Romans 12 life of worship, a life of sacrifice, we can expect opposition. Just like Judas, just like the Sanhedrin. But also notice that when we worship Jesus, when we truly worship him, the fragrance fills the room. And yeah, there will be opposition, but it will also influence others. They, they, won't, they can't help but take notice of the offering that is being made. And then lastly, we must remember that when we worship, just like Mary untying her hair at his feet, worship happens when we humble ourselves and when we honor our Savior. She thought she was crowning a king. She was embalming a corpse. She thought she was calling him priest, and she was. She thought she was calling him king, and, and she was. She thought she was calling him prophet, and he was. But not in her way. She thought she, she was anointing him priest, but he is the priest. But he's also the priest who's going to offer himself as a sacrifice. He is the king, but he's going to receive a crown of thorns. And he is the prophet, but his prophecy, his words are going to be, it is finished. This is the Savior that we worship, who is so glorious that even though he was killed, was ultimately crowned. This is the God that we praise and adore, and we're going to do that in just a few moments. Let's pray for real, sincere, authentic worship to erupt in this place, that the fragrance of worship would be filled in this room. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and we stand in awe of your masterful, sovereign plan in rescuing lost sinners. And God, we want to come before your feet right now and we want to offer you a sacrifice of praise. And so Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with a desire to pour everything out for you, to declare your worth, to, to, to make known your worthiness, to lift you up in worship. God, there is no price. There's nothing that we could give that could compare with your worth, Lord. But God, we're going to give all that we have. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen us and empower us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.